Good morning, church. Adam and moving my table here, finding where I'm supposed to be. Adam and Rick, thank you guys. I'll give them a hand. <clears throat> I want to look into the camera and just say a warm welcome to all of you who are joining us online. Um, I just scrolled through and it looks like uh, we have some people down in the intercoastal waterway of Florida, Steve and Connie. We've got a group out in Colorado. We've got a group in New York and maybe even a group in Albania. So just want to say a big uh, welcome. And even though you're not here with us, um, we consider us ourselves one in spirit. Amen? Um, so we are in a seven churches uh, series. I'm in Revelation 2, um, and I am doing verse 18 through 29 today. We're going to be talking about the church of Thyatira. Um, but before we jump into that, I want to put up a few photos. Nathan, do we have access to those? Um, so here's photo number one. I'm going to walk over here, so I don't know who's on camera. I can't see through those train lights, but you're going to have to follow me. Um, so this is uh, the amphitheater in Pergamum. Um, so we talked about Pergamum last week. I think this was just important that you guys see and know some things. So I've actually stood at the bottom of that amphitheater and read a chunk of scripture, had the people that I was with stand at the top of that amphitheater, which seats 10,000 people. Um, and I could speak in a just loud voice and uh, everyone at the top could hear us. Absolutely fascinating. All right, next slide. Uh, this is, I think, just important as we go through the seven churches. Um, so this is a little map of, of Turkey, and you can see where the seven churches are. We're in Thyatira, so this top right sort of corner today. Last week, Clive did Pergamum, and I think it was Smyrna before that, and Ephesus before that. Um, so fascinating, even the way geographically we're going around. All right, Nathan? Um, if you want to see where Thyatira is on your Google Maps, you can Google Thyatira Hill Tombs, and it'll take you right to where the ruins um, of, of this ancient uh, church would have been. All right, and my next slide, uh, this is actually the ruins in Thyatira that we're talking about today. I just want you to know that as we read the words on a page, it corresponds with a geographical place that is real, right? This, is ac this actually happened, uh, and, and so it's relevant not only then, but today, and I think that's very important. And then my last slide... This is interesting. So this, if you joined us last week, Clive Calver uh, talked about the Asclepion. Who, who was here and remembers that? Anybody? Well, this is actually um, a photo of the tunnel in the Temple of Asclepion. And um, this is, uh, these little doors are, would have been the individual bed chambers. And if you walked in there, there's two things. There was a hole probably in the ceiling where they could have dropped those snakes that he talked about. And there probably would have been a wooden door through which they could have, um, the doctors of that day could have put the snakes. Now, here's why I bring this up for two reasons. The first time um, I heard Clive talk about that, I was actually standing there and I went, Really? And I walked away, and guess what I did? I looked it up. Now, I want to pause there because this is so important. Acts 17.11, uh, Paul is actually talking, and he commends a group of people that are called uh, Berean Jews. You ever heard of them? Anybody know what he commends them for? What's that? Martin, thank you. Yes. So literally what it says is Paul commends this group of Berean Jews because he says, uh, it says that they, they searched the scriptures to test and see if what the Apostle Paul taught was true. Now, I think one of the greatest problems that the American church is currently in at this moment is we assume if we pick up a book by a Christian human that it's going to be 
True. And we fail to be intelligent in the Word. We fail to be Berean. We fail to be people that think. We fail to be people that actually uh, seek out people who might have more understanding with us uh, than us and ask those questions. Now, we also, I think, uh, oftentimes here in the American church, tend to think that if a person stands up and speaks on a microphone or they maybe look nicely dressed and they're on camera, that suddenly everything they say is true. Now, that could also be said for political parties and for different interest groups and all sorts of things. I believe that God has called a church in this day and in this time to be a Berean church. In other words, to be intelligent in what you are taking in and then to take it to the very bedrock of the Word of God to search the Scriptures and to seek understanding. Because if we're not, we're going to get swept aside by all manner of silly controversies and all sorts of things. Can anybody say amen? Amen. Now... We are in this church of Thyatira. Now, can you guess what happened in the the church of Thyatira with an intro like that? Anybody? They got wrong somehow. Thank you. Exactly right. Absolutely. That was well said. Better than I could have said it. The church in Thyatira got wrong. So that's the question about how did they get wrong, why did they get wrong, why weren't they Berean, and how did they get led astray? Um, So... Let's, uh, let me look here and kind of see where I am. Um, Thyatira is the longest of the, um, the, the, the messages to the seven churches, if you count words. Um, and it's also the smallest of the cities. Isn't that interesting? Like, that's fascinating to me. Why, why is that the way the Lord Jesus did it? Now, two things you need to know about the city of Thyatira. Um, Thyatira was a uh, military town. Um, And then secondly, Thyatira was a city of great commerce, and because of the commerce, there were these little things um, in the town called guilds. Okay? Anybody know what a guild is? Anybody watched The Mandalorian? Paul, you watched it? So Abby and I finally broke down and watched The Mandalorian. We were like, no, 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 no. We finally watched it and we enjoyed it. Um, but in the Mandalorian, uh, the Mandalorian is part of a trade guild. I'm actually going to read this. And that trade guild is comprised of mercenaries, bounty hunters, assassins, and soldiers who operate as a paramilitary unit. And they all get together. And guess where they gather in the, in the TV program? Come on. Somebody who's seen it. Bars. Lots of drinking, lots of partying, lots of immorality. Now, all that's fictional. Mandalorian. Okay, cast it aside. Church in Thyatira. There are guilds throughout the city, but they're similar to what's portrayed in that silly series. Okay? And the way it works is um, if Daniel owns a business, um, which you do, uh, building, construction, business, and uh, so the church in Thyatira, this is literally what they are being faced with, um, in order to uh, succeed and operate in the city, you have got to be a member of the Guild, that's exactly right. So, now, to be a member of the guild, the guilds get together, and much like the movie Mandalorian, guess what the guilds do? Party! They party, they drink, and all the stuff that follows after the party or during the party, and so all manner of compromise and immorality is literally happening. Now, if Daniel lived in Thyatira at this time, and he wasn't a part of the guild, guess what would happen to his business? It would probably struggle. It might even fall apart. Because if you're not in the guild, just like the movie Mandalorian, if he wasn't in the guild, would he get work? No. If you're not in the guild in Thyatira, would you get work? Most likely not. So what you immediately, you have to sort of at the onset of even reading this, you have to grasp and understand that this is a group of Christians who is faced with a huge choice. 
Do I bow the knee? Do I join the guild? Do I sell my soul? Or do I take a stand, not join the guild, and what if my family starves? Like, those are questions that we here in America don't often think about or face, right? It's just not part of the way we sort of think and even uh, work and do business. A couple other things before we start reading. Um, dying, so scarlet or, or purple, um, was deep, deep red, um, was part of the, the industry in Thyatira. I think that's important to know. Um, and, you know, so as you go into this, the question is, uh, what happened, back to your statement, where did they go wrong? This is a heavy kind of day. There's a lot we're going to cover and, and look at. Um, so dig in with me. I'm going to start reading. I'm in Revelation 2. I'm going to start in 18. And, and I forgot one thing that I need to say. Forgive me. Um, my dear friend, uh, Clive Calver, um, preached last week. He's been a vital part of this series. He's, he was preaching half of the, um, the, the churches. And he's a scholar. He's been there. Um, many, many times, but he got the coronavirus injection. And he had a, a probably an adverse reaction to it. And he's got injection number two coming up on the 10th. And because of that, we are simply going to pause this series. So this will be the last church that we do. We're going to pause it for a few weeks, and we're going to come back to it once Clive is fully back on his feet. Does that sound good? So after today, uh, we're going to head probably into a few parables of Jesus, and then coming out of those parables the end of February, we're going to go into the last seven things that Jesus said um, as he died or right before he died on the cross leading up to Easter. And that, that series will come to kind of a conclusion on Easter. Sound good? All right, Revelation 2, we're digging in, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Now, there's a lot of different theories and comments on this, but you know, it's even where some people get this idea of an angel being over a church, or people even get kind of tweaked out on guardian angel kind of stuff. But there's writings, and people interpret that as uh, sort of what is being said here. The other thing that this could be is you're, you're addressing the pastor or the bishop over this church. That, that could be what is, is being written here. We're not entirely sure. But Jesus says to John, who writes it down, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. These are the words of the Son of God. Now, really important. Um, in the city of Thyatira was a temple to a guy named um, Apollo. Now, anybody know what Apollo was the god of? Almost. Sun. So really fascinating, because right off the bat, you get John literally writing, these are the words of the Son of God. Son of God. And he is um, literally uh, putting into context, Apollo's son God gets dismantled, Jesus, king of kings and lord of lords, creator, gets raised up. And he even begins to introduce here what happens in the church largely, and even in, here in America, is this idea of worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Big difference. Huge difference. So, here we go. The words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, he introduces this right here to sort of um, instill, I think, some of the fear of the Lord, because what he's about to say is heavy. This wasn't a day, you know, the Thyatiran church, when they gathered this particular day um, and, and this letter got read, I don't think they walked away going, yay! This was a, this was a, a heavy day. Um, so now, verse 19, here's what it says. I know your deeds. Now, this is such a positive verse, so hear it this way. This is a positive encouragement to the church. I know your deeds. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service and your perseverance. 
And not only do I know those things, but I know that you're doing more now than you did at the first. What a compliment. I mean, I would love for the Lord Jesus to look at me and go, Michael, I know your love. I know your service. I know your faith. I know your perseverance. I mean, it's this huge compliment. And in fact, I think you could even take, um, it's something that Abby and I try to do in our marriage and relationship, but you could take a pattern of communication from this, that before Jesus uh, gives them the firm rebuke that's coming, what's he do? Yeah, he acknowledges what they're doing well. Uh, it's funny because in, in our marriage, I always tell Abby, hey, babe, uh, before you like just do this different or change this or say that, well, just acknowledge a couple things I'm doing right. You know what I'm saying? That's a good marriage principle. That's a good life principle. And you actually see the Lord Jesus doing it here. So if you think that came out of modern psychology, think again. That's the old hero sandwich. Jesus starts with some acknowledgement of what they're doing really well, and then he launches in. Okay, let's launch in uh, to verse 20. Now, here is what I would say is the conviction of King Jesus. Nevertheless, I have this against you. I don't know about you, but I don't want to hear that from the Lord, at least not very often or not very consistently. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and the minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Holy Spirit, it's a humbling thing to read those words. And I ask as we read them today that you would do far more than simply make those words on a page for us. Lord, would you search each of our hearts? Would you sift us, Holy Spirit? Would you come? Would you speak to us? Would you enliven us? And would you even change us? Now, let's, amen. The preaching is one constant conversation with the Lord in my mind, so I'm not even going to say amen. I'm just going to keep going. Um, so here's, Nathan, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm doing this, so you can keep, you, you, you can keep up with me. Um, <clears throat> couple things. I think the first thing that you should notice right here is beware the person that calls themselves um, that labels themselves. What did, what did they say very beginning here? Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Beware the person who self-labels. Beware the pastor. Beware the author. Beware the leader who self-labels. Because when you self-label and self-promote, you're actually lifting and raising yourself up. So in America right now, even in American Christianity, there's a little bit of a movement afoot where if I decide I want to go start a business, um, I go start a business. If I decide I want to go start a church, well, why not? It's like starting a business. I'm going to go start a church, right? I'm a pastor, now, I would actually say that theologically there's some error in that, and it's very important. I want to tell you a quick story about how Saltbox got started. We met in my living room and prayed for three months. It was highly unexciting. Um, un, there was just nothing to it. We just sat and prayed. At the end of those three months, there was a group of like 15 people, give or take, and they voted on a group of elders and elected some elders who were all uh, former pastors, by the way. And then those elders looked at me at some point and said, Michael, would you start a church and pastor a church in the city? Now, that is very important because it's not simply Michael said, I'm going to go start a church. 
So beware the person that gives themselves a label. Beware the person that declares who they are and then tries to use that to um, lord over a group of people or to tell a group of people how they should go or, or where they should go or what they should do. Yes? All right. <clears throat> now, in the Old Testament, there are, in fact, prophetesses. Maybe you didn't know that. You got uh, Miriam, you have Deborah, you have um, Huldah. In the New Testament, you have Anna, the prophetess, um, and then you have the four daughters of Philip. Um, <clears throat> so there is biblical context for a woman who is a uh, prophetess. So the question then is, who is this Jezebel, and why is she so dangerous to the church? The other thing that I think you need to know about this particular city is there is a superstition um, in Thyatira at this time that seems to have been brought in by a corrupted group of Jews. Um, and basically what, what this was, it was um, a, a female um, who, who was a, had a fortune-telling shrine right outside the city walls, um, Sambatha or Sambathe, um, and, and literally people would come out and get their fortunes uh, sort of read and their future read. Now, I, I want to I dip into something very practically here for just a minute. Um, any time that you go to something other than God, the person of Jesus, the infilling power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Scriptures, for guidance or wisdom, you're in error. Okay? So um, let's just get real practical. Uh, Michael, uh, what about that little eight ball my kids have? Yes? No? I would never have one of those in my house. I never. It's not a toy. Because you're, you're, you're uh, circumventing, you're taking something from God that is only his, it's not ours. Well, let's go here. What about, I had a bunch of people interact with me on this first service, but what about um, astrology and horoscopes? Some of you may never heard this, and that's okay. If you're like, oh my goodness, Michael, I had no idea. That's okay. You just need to repent and change. Uh, astrology and horoscopes actually get into worshiping uh, the created instead of the creator. Okay? That, that's what they're, they're trying to foretell something. And, and so now, would I, would I ever encourage any of you all to be involved in that? Absolutely not. It opens a door to darkness in your life. If you've done it, then this is really simple. You just go, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? You stop doing it. And then you grab somebody that you trust, preferably an elder or somebody else from the church that has some biblical and spiritual uh, authority, and you get them to pray with you and just go, Lord Jesus, would you cleanse and clear me from being involved in that? You don't have to make it a huge deal. But what I would say is be very careful from going to anything other than the Lord Jesus for guidance and the foretelling of the future. Make sense? It's not a toy to be played with. Uh, role-playing games, Ouija boards, palm readers, you, we, we could go on and on. But that is dangerous territory where you're meddling uh, with God and what is his. The future is his. Leave it there. Trust him with it. The first service, we had a number of um, people just dialogue. because I had some questions like, Michael, what do you think? Um, one of the questions was, uh, we have a daughter, um, and she has seen on some Disney cartoons a good luck charm, and now she's carrying a good luck charm around. What do I do? I was like, whew, great question. We actually, uh, Amelia's been sick. She's running a little fever right now. And so she was sitting on the couch yesterday, and she's watching this little cartoon that I loved as a kid by the name of Robin Hood. And the old school cartoon of Robin Hood starts out, and Robin Hood and Little John are dressed up as, anybody know? Gypsies, fortune tellers. 
And they literally come in with a crystal ball. So I actually said that to Macy, and I said, yeah, my personal belief is that you should actually be very authentic, you should be very open, and you should begin to have dialogues with your kids immediately about this kind of stuff. Talk to them. There is only one source of life and truth, and that's Jesus. There is only one source of, of who holds the future, that's Jesus. And when you begin to sell yourself to anything or give yourself to anything that is not rooted and founded in him, uh, it is dangerous. It's absolutely dangerous. Uh, Tim, who's sitting right here, uh, raised his hand last service, and he, he made a comment about even personality tests. And I went, huh, okay. So um, you want to say that? So I think just something that he's pointing out there, he's, in, uh, he's working towards being a counseling pastor, um, and so I really value his input. But what he's pointing out there is anything. Is a personality test bad? No. Have I used those? Yes. If you're trying to get a, a group to work together, are they okay? Sure. But when you begin to use something, anything, and elevate it above the person of Jesus and go to it for direction and clarity and, and even who you're to become, then I think you get into troubled waters. So I think you just have to be careful. That makes sense? I'm not saying don't take a personality test, neither is he. He's just saying be aware. And that's what a lot of this is. It goes back to be Berean, be aware. <clears throat> so uh, you, you have this whole concept of how do I walk and how do I navigate and how do I live, even with kids, even with a family. And I would actually invite you into the journey of being more open and authentic with your kids. That, I think, is what it all comes down to. Uh, something that I struggle with in our American Christian whatever is um, the whole idea of Santa Claus. And here's why. When they're kids, we go, oh, Santa Claus is real. Jesus is real. And they get a little older, and we go, Santa Claus is real. Jesus is real. And then they get a little older, and we go, Santa Claus is fake. Jesus is real. You see the incongruence? I mean, I, I would, you know, Abby and I have just made a decision. We're, we, Amelia calls him the big red man, <laughs> which is fine. It's great. I mean, I don't have any problem with the big red man. I'm just not going to get up and tell her that everything comes from the big red man. Just not going to do it. It's, 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 uh, I want to raise our kids with the most um, authenticity and intentionality possible. We would have similar postures on things like um, uh, secular music and even movies. People get real tweaked out on you. Can't listen to secular music. Remember, somebody asked that question first service. I, I don't buy that. For, not for a minute. But here's the thing. If you're always filling yourself with garbage that is um, para, uh, not, not Christ-centered or even against Christ, then that is what's going to be ruminating around inside of you. So if you got in my truck with me on any given day, what's generally on is worship music. That's just generally what I want to be filling myself with. But I love the Beatles, and I love some country music, and oh, that's fine. I'm not saying be weirdos. we got to be in the world, but not of the world. I do the same thing with movies. Somebody asked that too. It's like, well, tell us what we shouldn't, you know, the rating we shouldn't watch. I'll never do that. Why would I create a law? Jesus didn't create it. I'm not going to create it. There are R-rated movies that I think every human ought to watch. Schindler's List, for one. I think everybody that is of appropriate age should be aware of some of the atrocities that have happened in our history of the human planet. 
So I'm not going to say don't watch this or don't watch that or don't do that. No, no, no. But you've got to be aware that what you're filling yourself with is opening a door. And I don't want to be filled with anything but King Jesus. I don't want to be filled with anything but his most Holy Spirit. And I want to have a full saturation of him in my life. Yes? Amen. That is, that is sort of the essence there. If you want to talk more about that, grab me later. I'd love to talk. Okay, let's keep, uh, well, no, let me, let me say this. Uh, Jezebel in the Old Testament, uh, you, you make a note, uh, 1 Kings 16 through 19, if you want to read about her. Um, but Jezebel in the Old Testament um, was literally an idolatrous king, um, and she enticed Israel to um, sort of merge uh, the Yahwehism or the God-centered um, faith that they had uh, with the worship of Baal. Now, this is really, really important because I, I don't think that Jezebel was trying to totally get rid of um, sort of the worship of God, the worship of Yahweh. No, no, no. It was much more seductive, much more slippery. She was actually trying to get the church to compromise. She was getting, getting the, trying to get the church to become sort of corrupted or infiltrated. And by doing so, she was rendering faith in God useless. Now, hang with me because this is so important. Uh, in 1 Kings 21-25, in the Amplified Bible, this is what it says, There certainly was no one like Ahab, that was Jezebel's husband, he was also king, who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. That's the essence of kind of who Jezebel was. Now, church in Thyatira, do I think there was literally a person named Jezebel? I, I don't, actually. I think there was a Jezebel-type person or persons who were operating there, um, and, and it, was, it was for that reason that Jesus writes through John what he wrote. Um, so I think you would also have to make then the, the parallel that um, I don't think that this Jezebel and Thyatira is trying to destroy the entire church. No, no, no. I think what she's actually trying to do is uh, get the people to um, merge maybe the guilds, maybe the worship of the emperor. She's getting people to uh, eat food eaten by or a sacrifice to idols or sexual sin. And in, in merging sort of the worship of the gods of the day, she is rendering faith in Jesus inoperative. See what I'm saying? I don't think she was trying to like get the church to close its doors and disband. No, 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 no. It's much more secretive and seductive and sleek than that. She's trying to get the, 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 the church to buy into things that aren't true and lies and merge the, them with where they're walking so that the faith in Jesus is no longer faith. Jesus didn't come to be a Savior. Jesus didn't come to be a Lord. 1 John 14, 6 tells us that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the... He came to be the Savior, the Lord, the only way. And anytime you begin to mix and merge things, everything gets really, really murky. So Jezebel here is accused of two things, um, eating food, sacrifice to idols, and teaching the church to do the same, and then uh, sexual sin. And anyone, I would say to you, um, who uses uh, manipulation and control um, to spiritualize and elevate sort of their status for the purpose of achieving their end could be said to be a Jezebel-type character. Now, it's fascinating because in all of these seven churches, we keep reading um, that uh, people like Balak are entering in, people like Balaam are entering in, people like the Nicolaitans are entering in, and people like Jezebel are entering in, and they're all leading the church astray. Now, hang with me. If five of the seven churches that we are looking at here get a rebuke for letting something come in and um, 
a compromise or a clog up or uh, you know mix with the pure uh, truth of the gospel. Do you not think that that is happening in the church in America? I do not think for a minute that the church today is immune to the same rebuke that Jesus is giving the church then. Be Berean. Who's responsible for your faith? Who? You are. You are. I imagine that Jezebel was teaching the believers in the church of Thyatira to compromise both on the practices of Roman religion and even on the guilds. She's most likely even saying to a guy like Daniel, uh, compromise, it's okay because you don't want to lose your job and you don't want to be able to not support your family. That's probably, if you really boil it down, some of what was happening. Now, I want to totally flip and take this someplace that I don't think any of you would anticipate, but let's go here because this is so powerful. The person of Jezebel um, has been used in, in, in American Christianity to hold down and push down a group of people. Anybody know who that group of people is? Women. Now, I've had two people um, in, in recent months come to me and say, Michael, we let women preach. I said, oh, we do, you noticed. I said, let's talk about that. And so I actually want to give you, um, I'm going to pound through this. This is going to be like a fire hose, and you're just going to have to roll with me, okay? But I'm going to pound with you uh, the New Testament theology and even the biblical theology of women in leadership in the church. Ready? Okay, here we go. I got 11 points. That's a lot. According to Romans 16, um, who delivered Paul's letter of Romans? Anybody? Phoebe. Phoebe was a deaconess, and Phoebe was a leader in the local church. Now, if Paul selected Phoebe to deliver it, so he didn't select Timothy, he didn't select Titus, he didn't select all the other dudes that rolled around with him, he selected Phoebe. When Phoebe uh, ran, ran that letter or walked that letter, or however she got it, to the house churches in Rome, when she got there, who read the letter to the house churches? Phoebe would have read it. Now, let's just imagine for a minute, let's imagine that the house churches had a question about the book of Romans. That's a big book. I have a lot of questions. If they had a question, who do you think they would have asked? Phoebe! Are you telling me, Pastor Michael, that Phoebe was teaching men? Yes. I don't think they pulled out a parchment and wrote Paul and sent it on. I think Phoebe answered the question. That's point number one. Point number two, 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. If you adopt the posture that women should not teach men, according to 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, you also must adopt the posture that women should, who knows? Cover their head. How many women in here have a head covering? Does any woman even have a head covering? I see some guys with hats on. No women, no. Okay, so here's the thing. If you walk into a church and that church believes that women can't teach or preach and they don't have their heads covered, then I would go, hold on, aren't you falling off the wagon here? You got to do the whole thing, right? So every, every commentator that I've ever read agrees with basic hermeneutics and theology that the issue of head coverings is culturally restricted to the Greco-Roman environment of Corinth. 
I would say to you this morning, so is female leadership and teaching. Number three, most likely in Corinth, that's 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. if you want to read those, uh, you had some contentious women who were interruptive and uh, maybe disrespectful, who knows, but they were probably fresh converts um, out of the mysterious orgy cults, which are not- notorious in Corinth. Corinth was even famous for them, and they were probably dominating the church. So the apostle Paul wisely said, zip it, put on a head covering, sit down and be quiet in church. Now, is it possible that if uh, the issue of head coverings um, is culturally restrictive to the Greco-Roman environment of Corinth, then so is the issue of a woman standing up and preaching in church? Yes. Absolutely. Why commentators and theologians haven't connected those two, I don't know. Many have, but here in the South especially, uh, that is not often uh, followed. Number four, after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus first revealed himself to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. How many demons, just just, uh, if you know, did he cast out of Mary Magdalene? Seven. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that you use broken people. Yes? Now, so the first person Jesus appears to is Mary Magdalene, and what does Jesus tell Mary Magdalene to do? What? Don't be afraid, yes. And then what's he tell her to do? What's his instruction? Go tell the boys. That's exactly what he said. Go tell the boys. How many, how many of the boys were there left? Eleven. Now, pause there. What is preaching the gospel? Somebody tell me. What's preaching the gospel? Going and telling what? About Jesus. Specifically about the resurrected Jesus. That's preaching the gospel. So when Jesus told Mary Magdalene to go and tell the 11 guys, what was he saying? Go preach. The first resurrection sermon was delivered by a woman. Number five, the Bible is clear on male headship in Ephesians, but before Paul even deals with male headship, he establishes the idea of mutual submission one to another. If I start in marriage counseling with a couple, either pre-marriage or marital after marriage, I'm going to start with the concept of mutual submission. First, surrender to King Jesus, then mutual submission to one another before we ever talk about male headship. Number six, two prominent co-workers of Paul were Priscilla and Aquila. Who was the female? Anybody? Priscilla. Priscilla was the female. Aquila was the male. They, uh, in Acts 18.26, they took Apollos, who was a minister of the gospel in the early church, aside, and they taught him the true gospel or the right way. Now, if you look at the Greek there, um, Priscilla was literally, uh, it indicates that she was part of teaching Apollos. So, did Priscilla teach a man? Yes. The great error of the American church is we look at one context and one scripture and don't take into account the whole of the Bible. So when I say you need good hermeneutics and you need good theology, you can't proof text one little passage or one little chunk or one little scripture. No, no, no. You've got to put it in the whole. So does it appear when Paul says women sit down and, and, and don't teach in church, but he also says, Phoebe, go deliver my letter and teach it to the church of Romans, does it appear that the Bible uh, uh, contradicts itself? 
Yes, but does it? No. Not when you begin to understand the cultural significance of what's happening here. There are uh, several of Paul's co-workers he refers to in Romans 16 and Philippians 3, Priscilla, Yodia, and Syntyche, and, they, and Paul refers to them with the same Greek word he uses to describe Timothy and Titus, male co-workers. He puts them on a, on a similar plane. Uh, number eight, <clears throat> we generally find that Paul saying Christians are to teach each other with no reference to gender roles or limitations. Romans 5.14, Colossians 3.16, if you want to look them up. There are, there are others. Romans 16.7, um, Paul talks about a lady named Junia. You know her? So interesting, because Junia is Greek feminine, and it says Junia was outstanding among the apostles. Now, uh, recent commentators, um, uh, especially of the ESV translation, have actually changed that to Junius, which is masculine. But all the early church commentators translated it Junia, which is feminine. And Paul literally says, she came to Christ before me, she taught Christ before me, and she was a woman, outstanding among the apostles. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, Paul says, I don't allow women to teach. Michael, how do you deal with that? Well, let me tell you. There are indicators that what Paul is referencing here is the famous Artemis cult in Ephesus, which did introduce aberrant views of women, aberrant views of their roles, and aberrant views of their sexuality. Again, when you take Scripture as a whole, I don't think he's restricting women throughout all time from preaching or from teaching. He's literally saying there is an error in the church of Ephesus that has given rise to strange teaching that is not healthy in this situation. Don't allow women to teach. Follow me? Number 11, Paul writes in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29, In Christ Jesus, all are children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, and you have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs. So, the question that was asked of me, will we have female uh, elders or leaders in Saltbox? What do you think? Yes. Will we have females get up and teach like Phoebe or Mary Magdalene did? Yes. If I used Carol in first service, I'll use her again. If Carol, who's deeply capable, she's my administrative assistant and runs all, all sorts of things, I'm so grateful. But if she came to me after the service and said, Michael, I feel called or I want to go plant a church in the Middle East, will you send me out as a senior pastor? What do you think I would say? Trick question. I'd say no. Why? Cultural context. Could a woman be a senior pastor in the Middle East? Anybody ever traveled there? I can tell you if you haven't. A woman could not be a senior pastor in the Middle East. So I definitely believe in the Bible. I just want us as believers to be so intelligent and to not proof text little things and then apply that broadly across the board. And I think the American church is guilty of that. All right, let's dig back in. I'm in uh, verses 24 through 29. <clears throat> Let me find where in the world I am. Verse 24. 
Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, who have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. By the way, I think Satan's so-called deep secrets are to get you to merge other things into the Christian faith and therefore render your faith in Jesus useless. He's not trying to get you not to come to church. He's trying to get you to blend your Christianity with a few other things so that it's worthless. That's Satan's deep secret. And if Satan can infiltrate our churches in America right now like that, then he renders us as believers useless because Jesus is no longer the way, the truth, and the life. He is no longer Lord of lords and King of kings. He just becomes a way. And that's error. I will not impose on you any other burdens except to hold on to what you have until I come. Verse 26, to those who are victorious and do my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. They will rule them with an iron scepter, will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give them the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I want to say something and... Um, I'm going to cut a line right here. Uh, remember how I started this sermon. I called you to be what? Berean. Be Berean. In other words, don't take everything you say, as, at, at, everything you hear someone say at face value. Take it to the word. Find out if it's accurate. Find out if it fits in a context. Don't just be you know, some follower that follows the Pied Piper after anyone or anything or any group. Now, I want to say something, and I'm going to cut a line, and you're just going to have to take it And I would say of anything that's said here, you chew the meat and spit out the bones. You follow Jesus above everyone. Okay? Now, there are conspiracy theories right now being perpetrated and delivered by Christians and by churches that I believe in some cases are Jezebelian and Thyatiran in nature. And if we allow certain things to take root in our heart, we are sitting in a dangerous place. Be careful, church. If five of the seven New Testament churches merged Thyatiran or Jezebelian things into their Christianity and the Lord Jesus rebukes them, don't think that we as churches in America aren't sitting in the same spot. Who's responsible for your faith? You. You get under a good pastor. You get under someone who teaches the word of God. You get under someone who is still learning. You get under someone who has elders over them who can remove them from office if they go amok. But you watch what you put into your heart and into your mind, and you watch the things that you affiliate with, and you watch the directions in which you go. Because have no mistake, Satan is not trying to get a bunch of people to bow down and worship him. He's trying to get you to put your Christianity into a blender with a bunch of other things and shake it about in such a way that the the power and the resurrection power of this Jesus in your life are inoperative because it's been so mixed with other things. That's the goal of the enemy. And he's after churches in this country right now. Anybody know what the Pantheon is? The Pantheon was a temple in Rome. It was built by Caesar. And in that temple, you walked in, and guess what you worshipped in that temple? Every God. Every God. You ever seen that, um, that coexist sticker in America? Now, I am of the opinion that Christians ought to be the most loving, the most kind, the most gracious, even the most accepting to people that disagree with them. 
And if by that sticker that's what you mean, great. But if by that sticker you render the power of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the way, the truth, and the life, if you render that down to just another way that always lead to God, then you have entered the Roman pantheon. And Satan has effectively rendered your faith in the risen Christ Jesus as useless. I would even call us to look at what some Christians across this nation are doing right now. Because if there's not the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, you have to question, is that person really operating out of a heart that's given to Christ Jesus? And my Bible says that you know a tree by its fruit. And if at some point an apple tree doesn't bear apples, I think you have to go, is this really an apple tree? You go, Pastor Michael, are you questioning people's salvation? No, 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 I'm not. But here's what I am doing. If you don't have the fruit of a life that is consistent and surrendered to Christ Jesus in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your singleness, at your job, at some point you have to go, Lord, have I really given you my life? In Matthew 7, 22, Jesus actually says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? And he literally says, depart from me. I didn't know you. Like, whoa. I'm not preaching that you can lose your salvation. Don't walk away and think that. But I am preaching, we as Christians in the 2021 church in America, if we allow Jezebelian type things, be them groups, parachurch organizations, political groups, affiliations, we could go on and on, into our lives and we elevate that type of loyalty above the person of Christ Jesus, then the enemy has knocked the stool out from under our feet and we will be lying flat on our backs, unable to access the power and the person of Christ Jesus in our lives on a daily basis. I would call us as a church to be a Berean church, to be an intelligent church. It's fascinating to me that if you contrast the churches in Ephesus and Thyatira, you have the Ephesian church that's weak and even weakening in its love for God, for people and each other, and yet, uh, the Ephesian church was strong against false teachers and, and good doctrine. But the church in Thyatira is growing stronger in their love, stronger in their deeds, stronger in their, their service, but they're tolerant of false doctrine and false teachers. Both extremes have to be avoided. And I would tell you that the church of Thyatira and the church of Ephesus is very likely the church in America. May we wake up just because a church is crowded with people or is a hive of energy and action doesn't necessarily mean it's a real New Testament church. It's possible for a church to be crowded because people have come to be entertained, not instructed or challenged. People have come to be soothed instead of confronted with life and truth, sin, judgment, the righteousness of God.
In the end here, God exhorts the Thyatiran church to repent, to change your mind, to agree with him. This isn't just an invitation to lost sinners, but it's an invitation to Christians who've lost their way. Nathan, would you put up Joshua, is it 24? Joshua 24, verses 15 and 16. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You flip to the next slide. I don't know who's on camera, but I'm going to walk down. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord. Flip back for me, Nathan. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Say that with me. One, two, three. I don't care if we're two or if we're 2,000 or 20,000. What I am interested in is a group of people who is Berean, who is becoming more intelligent in the word, who is becoming more sold out to Jesus, who is dedicated to surrendering lives to him, who is dedicated to giving him everything and then to walking out that vibrant love of Jesus in real and practical ways throughout a city. That's what I'm after. That's what I believe he's after. Let's close our eyes in prayer. If you'll say with me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Would you stand to your feet? and Let's say that. As a small and silent dedication of our hearts and lives to him. Say it with me. One, two, three. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, as for me and Saltbox Church, we will serve the Lord. Father, would you guard us against things that would try to infiltrate and mix and blend the pure meat of the gospel of Christ Jesus with other things that would want to lead us astray, that would want to water down who you are. And Father, I believe in this day and age that you are calling and even raising up a group of people who are dedicated to walking with you holy, to believing you with totality, to giving their lives to you in full surrender, and to passionately following you everywhere that you would lead. If you're online today watching, or even if you're sitting here, if you've never given your life to this Jesus, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says it in a way that I love. It's very simple, but it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never done that, will you connect with Patrick or Nikki online and get in touch with me? If you're in the room and you want to pray that prayer, I would love to walk you through that. Grab me afterwards. If you're online and want to talk on the phone, Patrick will get you connected with me. This is the most important decision you'll make. And then for us as a church, for us as Christians, walking after him in spirit and in truth, not letting our faith get blended with anything else, is the crux of what lies ahead in the next few decades. Lord, as you send this church out today, may they be a church that knows your love, that knows that you died for them and that you've now given them opportunity to live life in you and you in them. Father, may they sense the warmth of your gaze. May they sense the gracious touch of your hand. 
And Father, would you grow a church that is ruthlessly and fully surrendered to the infilling power of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you need special prayer, there'll be a few of us up here. If you're online and you have a question or you need special prayer, please get in touch there with Patrick or Nikki. I'd love to talk to you more in person. The Lord is alive and well in this day. The church is not a thing of yesterday. He is here and he is moving. The question is, will we move with him? Go and shine the love of Jesus.